This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike in for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, One More Time debuts on AMI-tv tonight. I'll share my exclusive EL delays have been causing strain for some customers. And so reporter Megan Gilmore will fill you in on that story. And the 2024 federal budget is open for feedback. Community reporter Dorothy McNaughton explains why you should share your input into the budget. All that and more to come on today's program. But first, we begin with the top news stories of the day. We're starting in the world of the environment and a climate advocacy group is asking securities regulators to investigate the use of terms like sustainable finance by Canada's big five banks. Michelle Zadikin files this report. Investors for Paris Compliance says in its complaint that banks are potentially deceiving investors by claiming that the $2 trillion in sustainable finance pledges they've made will help them achieve climate goals. The submission to Ontario and Quebec's securities regulators says terms like sustainable finance are too broad. The group says there are several instances where financing has helped companies increase their emissions. The Canadian Bankers Association says banks follow market standards on disclosure and are are working with regulators to advance sustainability reporting measures. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. And that's not the only intersection of the environment and finances because climate disasters cost $3.1 billion in insured damages last year. This is the fourth most expensive year in the Insurance Bureau of Canada's rankings. So Sarah Ritchie has all the numbers. 2023 was the hottest year on record in Canada, leading to droughts, fires and storms across the country. At the top of the Insurance Bureau's annual tally were the BC wildfires. The Okanagan and Shuswap fires cost $720 million in insured damages. Severe summer storms in Ontario cost $340 million, and hailstorms in Winnipeg and Calgary combined to cause more than a quarter billion in damages. Sarah Ritchie, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Forecasters say that the price of oil is dropping this year, and this comes after years of surging prices at the pumps. Michelle Zedekian has this angle covered as well. Oil prices were volatile in 2023 and have already declined since October because of a combination of factors, including growing supply and slowing demand. A new report by Deloitte Canada is forecasting U.S. benchmark oil to average $72 U.S. per barrel for the year ahead. That's more than 7% below 2023's average and a whopping 29% below 2022. While it's perhaps not the greatest news for Canadian oil producers, consumers should benefit in terms of lower prices for home heating and at the gas pumps in 2024. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. 
A third class action lawsuit has been filed over salmonella-tainted cantaloupes that killed at least seven people. Terry Theodore has the story. The lawsuit filed in British Columbia is against Melachita, the company that grew the cantaloupes, and two U.S. food firms. Two similar suits have been filed in Quebec and Manitoba on behalf of those who became ill. The lawsuits haven't been proven in court. The latest update from the Public Health Agency of Canada says there have been 164 confirmed cases of salmonella in eight provinces linked to the food. Terry Theodore, The Canadian Press. And finally, this story comes from abroad. South Korea has passed a law that will ban the production and consumption of dog meat by 2027. Charles Diladesma shares the details. South Korea's parliament has passed a landmark ban on production and sales of dog meat. As public calls for a prohibition have grown sharply over concerns about animal rights and the country's international image, some angry dog farmers say they plan to challenge the bill and hold protest rallies, a sign of continued heated debate. The bill would make slaughtering, breeding and sales of dog meat for human consumption illegal from 2027 and punishable by two to three years in prison. Most South Koreans think dog meat should be banned and a majority no longer eat it. I'm Charles Dillard. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the daily polls. First, we begin with the results of yesterday's poll, where we asked you, what is your preferred way to exercise? And 33% of you said weightlifting, 0% said group classes, 33% said cardio machines, and 34% said playing sports. We had quite a number of responses. We'll start on X first, and James tweeted in, blind curling. Unfortunately, I am out for the season due to a fractured knee, and physiotherapy is my exercise program for now. Hopefully, you have a quick recovery there. James, over on Facebook, Kelly wrote in, it has to be a team sport or a group activity where people are depending on me to show up. Otherwise, I don't do anything at all. Joyce says cardio and weights. Andrea and Shane chime in with brisk walking, which was another popular option. And Craft and Deborah said aqua fitness. Thank you all so much for chiming in on yesterday's poll. For today's daily poll, this is going to relate to Megan Gilmore's topic on via rail and via trains later on in the show. So I wanted to find out from you, what is your biggest issue with train travel in Canada? Is it delays, a lack of accessibility, limited routes, or high costs? So let's welcome in Filling in as co-host today for me, Elizabeth Muller, and entertainment reporter Laura Bain to get your perspectives on this. Elizabeth, I will start with you. What is your biggest issue with train travel in Canada? Can I say all of the above? I am um, a, a doctoral student at Western uh, in London, so I take the train quite frequently from Toronto. And even if you book really far in advance, the costs, even with the student discount, like $61 for one one trip, that's not one round trip, it's one single trip, is a lot. It adds up. Um, for sure, the lack of routes is a challenge, certainly during the pandemic. 
trains reduce their routes and they're, they're still sort of bouncing back. So even going to London at one point, there was like seven trains a day and now there's like five, which sounds like a lot. But if you want to come and go in the same day, it's, it's definitely a challenge. The accessibility is getting better, although I would say there's there's certainly, you know, room for improvement, uh, you know, specifically in the stations. The challenge there, of course, is there isn't staff at every station. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I would say just overall, the delays are a challenge. I do know if you're over an hour delayed, they'll give you 50% off, but that's a, that's a lot of delay to get that 50% mm -hmm. off. And I generally never take the train the day of an event if I have an exam or a, a really important event, because I know, I just know that that's going to be the time it's delayed. So I always go the night before. Elizabeth, I'm going to hold you to one of these choices, though. I know you want to go with all the above. Okay. That's not an option. I'm making you okay. choose which one is You're gonna the biggest You're going to make me choose. Issue. All right. I'm going to say the biggest issue is um, the cost, for sure. Hmm. Yeah, well, because I, I think in, in terms of that as well, when you have that high cost, you expect, okay, well, you're going to be getting a quality of service, more reliability, better train service, better accessibility, when you can kind of relate those to all the other kind of issues that uh, you have come across in, in your train travel journeys. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, Laura Bain, I want to welcome you in. What is your biggest issue with train travel in Canada? Yeah, if I have to pick one, I'm going to put the limited routes as my choice. Mm -hmm. Now, I absolutely love train travel. I find it is relatively easy and more comfortable compared to other options. And I was in France, as I've mentioned, last summer, and we used the train system there almost entirely to get around. Um, and mm -hmm. like bonus, we got to see the countryside. My guide traveled for free, you know, and Elizabeth mentioned accessibility. They have some wonderful accessibility features in their stations there for people who are blind or partially sighted, such as rumble strips on the ground that lead you from like outside where you might get dropped off by transit or a taxi into the station and into key areas of the station. So I thought that was just so cool. Um, now, you know, from here in Halifax, we have just one train and it takes mm -hmm. us to Montreal. I used to use that relatively often, especially if I was visiting friends in Moncton because it made a stop there. But I found that they've just cut the schedule back to the point. It's only a couple days a week now and the prices have gone up that as much as I don't like taking like a coach bus, that is the, ends up being the option that makes sense. Um, you know, I have an awful lot that I could say on this. Uh, you know, I think as much as I love the rails to trails that we have here, it's so unfortunate that we've dismantled our rail infrastructure. Uh, and I, you know, want to say that I think that uh, if we do develop that infrastructure, which I think we should, we have to think about the whole transit picture because it's no good mm -hmm. for people to be taking the train to their destination and leaving their cars behind. They're not going to do that if they get to their destination and then there's no way to get around. So we have to think about buses, um, Ubers, things like car share so that people will choose to leave their cars behind and actually um, use the trains. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. Like I too remember like in, in my travel in, in Europe uh, last year, it was so surprising just to see what a society that invested in infrastructure and built cities around infrastructure around public transit and, and how much of a shift it was. Like we're so used to a car focused society that if you actually made the investment, you, you prioritize public transit, these train systems, these, you know, all these other means that you could actually get from, you know, uh, rail to trail, as you, you mentioned, the, the 
the full journey, it really takes away the the reliance on a vehicle to get anywhere. And and so I I think for me, I'm probably gonna go somewhere between the limited routes and the high cost. You know, delays are just inevitable. I think that's just the world we live in, especially in in Canada being a very large country, very distinctive weather patterns. There's so many different factors that will attribute to delays. You're always gonna have a delay one way, shape or form. Lack of accessibility, I think it's always going to be a struggle that it could be better. We can always do better. We can always improve. We can always take step. I think the progress is slowly going forward, but it's when you have a limited routes and then there's also kind of the shrinking of routes or, or lack of alternative options. I, I still remember, you know, a few years ago getting really the big news of removing a lot of the Greyhound and bus options mm -hmm. that you become reliant on trains, especially in more rural areas. You need to have more access, and as a result, the high costs need to contribute to that. But uh, for now, thank you both for chiming in. Uh, I would love to chat more about this, but we have other areas we need to uh, go for the show. But don't go anywhere, because you will be back, both of you, later on in the show. But for now, I want to hear from you at home. What is your biggest issue with train travel in Canada? You can vote on the poll through Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or on X at Accessible Media. You can also send us an email, feedback at ami.ca, or give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Last year saw an unprecedented amount of climate emergencies. As you can guess, this is kind of the theme of the show so far today. Ann Kamosi considers the progress in the work that needs to be done to achieve emergency preparedness for all Canadians. And she is here to look ahead at what 2024 may bring. We'll be checking that in with her after the break. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe. 2023 was an unprecedented year for climate emergencies. From massive storms and flooding in the east to wildfires that ravaged the north and the west, it is more important than ever to be prepared for these situations. Disability Rights Act advocate Ann Kamosi has covered this file extensively, and Ann is here to look ahead at what 2024 may bring. Hello, Ann. How are you doing today? I'm just great, Alex. Nice to be here to talk about this, even though it's a difficult topic. Yeah, absolutely. You always bring such valuable information and insights, so I never uh, am afraid to chat emergency preparedness with you, Ann. So first Thank off, you. let's start with this. What what improvements have you seen in how emergencies have been managed for folks with disabilities? We'll, we'll look on the positive to start this conversation. Well, I think we made some really great strides in 2023. Although their climate emergencies were incredible, we now have voluntary vulnerable persons registries in the city of Halifax, uh, Mississauga, Jasper, and many other locations in Canada. 
Um, there's been new emergency legislation in British Columbia that addresses people with disabilities, and that's a result of the huge number of people with disabilities that died in the heat dome. Um, most importantly for all the listeners, there are new emergency management codes of standards for persons with disabilities that have been developed by Accessibility Standards Canada. And those um, uh, standards are online for review until January 17th. So there's only uh, eight days left to review those. And, and you can, um, I think they'll probably put the link in the script for the show, but accessiblecanada.ca, type in emergency accessibility standards. And they are a very accessible um, survey um, for multiple disabilities to get your input on how we should be moving forward. And so for yourself, because this is obviously something you're, you've been very passionate about, you've been advocating for, you know, getting more vulnerable persons to list. What, what are you uh, gonna be focused on this year? What's next for Ann Camozzi as uh, 2024 rolls on? Well, I'm going to be working very hard to try and get the whole province of Nova Scotia covered. Um, we have the city of Halifax, which is roughly half the half the province's uh, population, but that leaves another half a million people, 30% of which have disabilities, uh, who are not covered in emergency management. And like I've said on other shows, most emergency management in Canada is done by volunteers. And volunteers do not have time in the face of a wide-scale emergency to accommodate those of us with special needs. So I'm going to be working on that provincially. But I also want to try and erase the stigma about vulnerable persons' registries. There are some people with disabilities who take issue with the word vulnerable. And I think they're, you know, that's a legitimate concern. But it's really important to understand that when we're talking about these vulnerable persons registries, we're talking about people like me who live alone, who um, have multiple disabilities, but I'm not vulnerable in an everyday situation, but in the face of a wide-scale emergency, I am made more vulnerable. And I think there is very little information that needs to be collected other than my GPS location and a plan for me. So for me, I need evacuation. I need accommodation for a different way to evacuate. I need wheelchair accessible transit. To organize that after a hurricane or in the middle of a fire is almost impossible. So I'm really going to try and encourage all people with disabilities to become involved in their own communities. And so, as you mentioned with the removing stigma, part of that always comes down to uh, providing education and, and informing the public about like what really the situation is, what are the issues, and and really, as you mentioned, like what is a vulnerable person's registry? What does emergency preparedness actually look like? So what information do you think people still need to be made aware of, or what should they know about this as you try to remove that stigma? Well, first of all, we need everybody to comment on those standards. We need as many people with disabilities to to comment on the accessibility standards. And, and as I talked about in earlier episodes, and if you haven't seen the episode I did in September, it's on YouTube about how people with disabilities can get prepared for 
um, emergencies. And as Dave said at the time, some of those solutions are outside the box because mm -hmm. we still live in quite an ableist society, but we do need every person with disabilities to create their own emergency plan. Predictions are that this year will be just as warm, if not warmer than last year. Um, that means more climate disasters and emergency, unfortunately, and a reminder that people with disabilities are two to four times more likely to die in these climate emergencies. So we all need to be prepared. But just as important as creating your own emergency plan, part of that should be reaching out to your local EMO, especially if you live in a rural location, to discuss the needs that you have for accommodation. Find out how EMO works in your community. Advocate for better planning for people with disabilities. You know, we have to advocate for accessible shelters, accessible emergency evacuations, such as in my case, warming and cooling centers, voluntary vulnerable persons registries. We need people to keep t caring about this topic because it's our lives that are at stake. And, and really, we have to demand that em people with disabilities be included in emergency management messaging. I think, I think that's also very important. And so looking ahead for, for this year, what, what are your biggest hopes for 2024? Well, of course, in a perfect world, um, the global community would make real inroads into the climate emergency and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and that everybody listening will reduce their own ecological footprint. You know, it. I, I was reading The Guardian uh, two days ago and they were saying that um, 2023 fatalities rose by 30% over 2022 for climate emergencies and it is shocking how many of those how many of those fatalities were people with disabilities and and older adults so i, I think you know we want to bury our heads in the sand on this issue and say oh it doesn't apply to me but i've now in our province last year we had a hurricane we had wildfires we had flooding and what shocked me was that there was absolutely no planning for me and my community. And I, I really think that everybody, you know, has to, I, I, so far I have not seen a better answer than volunteer vulnerable persons registries. And volunteer means just that. I put up my hand and say, I'm volunteering that I am made more vulnerable in a wide scale emergency and I am asking for accommodation. I, I um, and, and you know, and that means I have my own individualized plan. And I really personally hope that there will be VPRs in many jurisdictions and that our entire province will be covered. I certainly will be working hard to see that happen in my own community and, and, um, and at a provincial level. And I think it is an education thing for people with disabilities. I just assumed that I would be accommodated. I just assumed there was a plan for me. But making that assumption about your personal safety is really not a good idea in this current climate of, you know, climate emergencies.
Yeah, well, and we, we come across accessibility issues at the best of times, but especially in the case of an emergency or, or times of, of stress or, and, and uh, uh, issues in crisis, it's, it's going to be even more exasperated and it's going to be even more of an issue for, for folks to receive access to that, that proper care and support. So for folks who want to find out more information, who want to get involved, you said they can still chime in. What information, where should people be going to find out more information and get involved? Well, you can Google um, emergency preparedness for people with disabilities, and there are some documents that the federal government has put out. Each province is different, but there's very little information online. The, the, the session that we did in September is on YouTube, and you can Google that. And also a reminder um, that anybody can email me. I'm, I have a pretty big social media presence. If you go to my website um, at www.ancamosi, you can find my email. I'm more than happy to talk to anybody individually and, and let them know what I know is going on in their province. Um, I think we all need to work together on this. Please review the standards at uh, www.accessiblecanada.ca, emergency standards, and, and um, talk to each other. Uh, talk to your neighbours. Reach out to your neighbours. That's one thing I've, I've done. We had a power outage here last week, and because I had reached out to my neighbours, they came over right away to check on me. So we have to, we have to work together. And, and help each other out. And certainly I'm available for anybody who wants any help to get uh, advocating in their own community. That's very good. And thank you so much for this. As, as always, it's, it's a pleasure to chat with you and uh, have yourself a wonderful day. Well, thank you very much and happy new year to you, Alex, and everybody at AMI and everybody out there. Let's have a safe 2024. Let's have no more deaths from people with disabilities in Canada during wide-scale emergencies. Take care. Absolutely. That was Ann Camosi, a disability rights advocate based in Nova Scotia. Coming up after the break, via rail delays have been causing strain for some customers on the network. Reporter Megan Gilmore fills you in on this story. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-TV and streaming on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe. If you're a frequent viewer of the show, you'll know that Dave believes transit policy is disability policy. And he isn't the only person on the show who's been thinking about this uh, as well, because Megan Gilmore, who is a reporter with Canadian Fairs, she has spent a bit of time during the past few weeks thinking about and writing about public transit in Canada, and she is here now to talk about the findings she's come across. Hello, Megan. How are you doing today? Happy New Year, Alex. Good to be here. I'm glad to have you. So, Megan, your reporting started with a very basic question beyond just inspiring today's poll, but your question, what was it and why was it inspired? Sure. So the basic question that I started with was, why is the VO train always late? 
And shocker, not so much, that was inspired by a lot of personal experience. So I uh, live in Ottawa right now, and in the fall, I had to go back uh, to southwestern Ontario to, to my parents uh, several times for some family things and then some uh, doctor's appointments um, with like an eye surgery I had and to do that I go to Union Station and then I go from Union to I take a go train to Burlington where my parents pick me up mm-hmm. and my train from Ottawa to Union is often late um and i was sitting there on the train one day trying to do some work for this job working on another article and the internet was spotty and i was texting my boss about like yeah i'm trying to try to do some work on something but like the internet's not being you know really reliable and she said something like oh life on a train and i almost texted back can we please do a story about why the train is always late um, but wasn't sure if that would fly. But then I brought it up at a meeting and she was like, yes, yes, we must. So this is how it began. <laughs> and so, Megan, I, I know you never just leave a question unanswered or unqualified. So give us some data. How mm-hmm. often are Via Rail trains late? Sure. So if you are an avid user, a regular user of Via Rail Canada, you may think, wow, my train is like always late all the time. And you wouldn't necessarily be wrong. So in the third quarter of 2023, Via Rail reported that their trains were only on time 50% of the time, which means they were late 50% of the time, which means half of the trains were late. So if you're feeling like this is a common occurrence, it's because it is. And then in 2022 as a whole, uh, I believe the on-time performance was about 57%. So still just over half of trains are actually considered to be on time. So thinking through my experience with Via Rail, I I haven't been a huge user of it. Usually just in the GTHA, you know, you'll use GoTrain, things like that. Via Rail is more the longer journeys. I have taken it multiple times to go up to places like Ottawa and and whatnot. And I I find, yeah, the experience very much hit and miss. Usually usually it's it's Mm -hmm. on time departing. But then I'm going to be stuck on on the train itself for at least 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe even yep. an hour going to it. But why in general are these 50% of these trains late? Is there a specific reason? Like why? What are the rationales given? Sure. So first, like we just have to acknowledge like there's unexpected delays that happen, right? Like there's a thing called mm-hmm. weather. We live in Canada. There's a thing called snow, right? Like stuff (laughs) happens that a train company has zero control over, okay? But the main larger like systemic or from a policy uh, perspective, the larger reason why this happens is because Via Rail does not own the tracks it uses. So Mm. only about two to 2.5% of the train tracks across the country that Via Rail uses are owned by Via Rail which means that everywhere else, which is most everywhere else, Via Rail is like a tenant. They make agreements with other companies to use the trains, and that means that other trains get priority over them. The the trains are mainly owned by CN Rail, and CN Rail owns the big freight trains. So that means that the big, long freight trains that run more slowly, they get 
priority. That's why you're going to be on a siding track waiting for a freight train to pass. Also, because CN Rail or other companies own the trains, that means that uh, owns the owns the tracks. That means that they're responsible for maintenance of the tracks. And in, in some cases, the reason why uh, train trips are are longer is because. Uh, the trains have to go at slower speeds because the tracks um, aren't up to carrying a, a passenger train at a faster speed. Interesting, because I, I've never once considered the question of who owns the the, the tracks right. themselves as being part or or tied in any way, shape, form to you know the performance of of via or or train speeds or train travel times. It's it's truly a fascinating in terms of how this connects and impacts folks with disabilities? Like, what's that connection point? Sure, I'm just gonna go back and add a point to what you were just saying, and then I'll answer the question about disabilities. So it's not just CN Rail. It's also, Alex, like mm -hmm. Metrolinx owns yep. part of the tracks in Union. So if you've ever been in Union Station, especially if you're pulling into Union on a Via Rail, and you're like, why am I still stuck here? Like, why can I not move? I can see Union Station, like it's right there and I am stuck. And like, why is this last like 10 minutes taking 30 minutes? It's because Metrolinx. Um, mm. So there's a lot of different moving parts to this, which we'll get back to. And then in terms of impacting people with disabilities, I think it's, it's an obvious thing, but you forget it until somebody tells you it again. If you cannot drive, yeah. Public transit is transit. Public transit is personal transit. Public transit is private transit. Like that's how you're getting anywhere. Uh, so people with disabilities are disproportionately impacted by delays in transit because that's how they're going to be getting around if your disability impacts your ability to drive. Uh, so especially in um, areas where you may have to travel further for specialist appointments, um, or different type, types of medical care or disability supports. Uh, this could impact your ability to access it. Um, there's been stories, and if you go to canadianaffairs.news, there's, there's a piece I wrote a few weeks ago about VIA, and an individual that we spoke to, um, his train essentially stopped working, and he and all his other fellow passengers were uh, put onto buses, and they continued the rest of their train trip via a bus. Um, he was able to do that. That was fine. But what if you're a passenger and you use a wheelchair and mm -hmm. your train breaks down somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Canada, in the middle of the night, and you're waiting for a bus, is the bus that's going to come to get you, are they able to take you in your wheelchair? So it adds a whole other layer of complexity uh, when you're planning uh, your, your trips. Um, and also just think about uh, depending on like attendant care and what needs somebody might have. If a train trip balloons in length by a significant amount of type, time, that could affect the other, other needs that somebody might have. So it, there's a whole bunch of ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even uh, on the um, uh, conversation earlier in the show on the Daily Poll, Elizabeth Moeller mentioned the fact that, you know, she never takes a, a train the day of an appointment or, or uh, an important uh, uh, kind of uh, meeting or, or kind of commitment because of these things like delays or mm -hmm. if there is something like the, the train has to stop or there is a breakdown, you want to ensure you're going to make it on time and that's just the reliability uh, uh, factor is always something so key and uh, top of mind. But even beyond that, as you mentioned, with like having a bus as an alternative, what if the train breaks down in the middle of nowhere where there are no roads? Because there's quite often it's a train lane 
and uh, that's about it. You, you got trees on both sides. It's not exactly an easy access point for something like a bus to get to. So you would still have to get to a bus on top of that. Um, what now? Let's let's look. We're we're a solutions based show. I like to think mm -hmm. uh, from time to time, Megan. You know, we like to put on our our thinking hats and come up with solutions. So, what solutions are there, or possible solutions are there for this issue? Sure. So there, there's a few different policies that will be uh, touted when you talk to people who, who work in this field and, and who research it. One is that you create more rail lines. Mm. So this is when people talk about high-frequency rail lines in Canada, mainly uh, when they do that, they're talking about between like Toronto and Montreal, or potentially like, maybe between Calgary and Edmonton. Um, that that is one way, right? You give the via the give passenger rail trains their own line, and they don't have to compete with the freight trains, and everybody can just go and do their thing. It's fine. Um, that could be a solution. There are people who have concerns about how that might uh, might end up working with who who's in charge of those those high frequency uh, rail um, there that also is really intensive, right? They actually create a whole new train track. So it's very resource heavy, that type of thing. Another one has to do with the contracts that are negotiated between let's say via rail and the companies that own the tracks that via rail uses. And they're uh, they, in December, shortly before Christmas, a private member's bill was introduced in the House of Commons by um, an NDP MP out in BC that would uh, it, that asked the government to change the Canada Transportation Act so that passenger rail trains, uh, sorry, passenger trains have priority over freight trains. So there's that. Like, can we change the law and give priority to people versus freight trains? Um, so there's different solutions that that are out there, um, but a lot of it just really comes down to negotiating contracts. And I think to be clear, everybody. Everybody thinks that like freight trains are important. Okay, so like nobody's saying mm -hmm. like, oh, we don't need to transport things by trains. That no one's saying that. But the question is, how do we have passenger trains and freight trains use the same resources in a way where everybody's able to benefit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a very key point. And and the thing is too is that it's also. Uh, when you're you're thinking about okay these uh, train tracks and you got the the passenger train versus the the um, uh, kind of transport trains, oftentimes those transport trains are two three times the size of yeah. these passenger trains too. So yeah. even if there was an issue with that, you're you're taking up far more of the tracks themselves. So yeah, I think maybe there is there's something to be said there in that uh, kind of agreement of okay, maybe we prioritize the passenger trains. And if that results in cargo getting there an hour or two later than it was uh, originally scheduled. Well, I, I think the the impacts are going to be less felt than it is from the passenger standpoint of being late almost every single or at least one out of every two times to your destination. So uh, certainly fascinating, something I never considered or even thought about, Megan. So thank you so much for, for bringing this story forward and have yourself a wonderful day. No problem. Have a good rest of the show. You too. That was uh, Megan Gilmore, who is a reporter in Ottawa with Canadian Affairs. And you can read her work 
at Canadian Fairs for News. So that is CanadianAffairs.news. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller shares her weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian Press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index rose yesterday despite losses in the energy sector. Toronto's S&P TSX index gained 137 points to close at 21,074. New York's Dow Jones average rose 216 points and the Nasdaq surged 319 points or 2.2%. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 385 points and after losing $3 yesterday, the February crude oil contract is trading above higher this morning at $71.76 U.S. per barrel. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.84 cents U.S. A few years after some Indigo and Chapter stores unionized, their union says the retailer has made things increasingly difficult for workers post-pandemic. An Indigo spokeswoman says the company bargains in good faith and is committed to complying with collective agreements. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Now time to check in with the world of weather with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, looking outside the window this morning, it's seeming like it's getting pretty dark and pretty stormy out here. Is that the same for the rest of Ontario? Yes, unfortunately, that calm winter that we've had in Ontario, it's about to change. Not so calm anymore with a big Texas low, which is going to cause some disruptions and bring some different types of precipitation onto our weather table. So winter storm watches, snowfall warnings, and unfortunately, some travel advisors and weather statements are in effect in many areas of Ontario. So if you are planning to travel, check the weather conditions first to be sure that it's safe. Some places in Ontario might get up to 25 centimeters of snow and wind gusts from 50 to 75 kilometers per hour. That is pretty windy and lots of heavy rain. Freezing rain also is possible on the table in some areas, which is gonna make driving conditions quite risky. So expect some widespread travel issues as the storm moves across the province. Snowfall, icy conditions might surprise drivers. And this is a typical winter storm, but it's taking a bit of an unusual path, Alex. What we're seeing is we're seeing uh, cold air from Canada, warm air from that Gulf of Mexico, and then energy from the Rockies. And unlike typical mid-January storms, it's going to move from Texas straight into the Great Lakes area, more like an early spring storm, but don't be fooled, it's not early spring. And this storm is gonna start as snow before turning to rain. So Alex, I would suggest bringing all elements of clothing with you when you exit your doors in the next couple of days, umbrellas, coats, hats, boots, you name it. Elizabeth, I have an even better solution. Don't go outside at all. That's what I plan on doing as okay, much as possible. Okay, well, you could do that too, but some of us do like to play in the snow. What can I say? That's fair. <laughs> that is fair. Elizabeth, thank you so much for You're this. You're welcome. Okay, coming up after the break, the 2024 federal budget is now open for feedback. Community reporter Dorothy McNaughton explains why you should share your input. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Last month, the government of Canada launched pre-budget consultations to hear from Canadians about what matters most to them. Your feedback will be reviewed by the Department of Finance to help inform decisions on budget 2024. And you can share your concerns now until February 9th. Sault Ste. Marie community reporter Dorothy McNaughton has more details about this. Hello, Dorothy. How are you doing today? Hi, Alex. I'm good. Thanks. You know, Dorothy, I did not expect uh, when I, I, I was going to be chatting with you, we would be talking about the federal budget, but here we are. Uh, it's certainly something that's very important to discuss. So I, I'm, I'm curious, now that the federal government is asking for input into the next budget, you're, you're uh, hoping to uh, send in some recommendations. So what recommendations will you be making? Well, absolutely. I mean, I really feel this is important that they hear from ordinary Canadians and Canadians with disabilities. So I have two main issues that I want to bring to their attention. Um, the first is the need for passenger rail service in Northern Ontario, and particularly from Sault Ste. Marie north to Oba. And the thing is, um, it's a provincial short line railway, but the federal mm. government, the Ministry of Transport, provides funding to some, well, to provide subsidies basically to all rail transportation in Canada. And we feel that it, the ideal solution to not having much rail transportation in the North is to have the federal government provide half of the annual operating funding and the province providing the other half. So I'm going to bring that to their attention. Um, and the other item that's important to me is a federal assistive devices program and i know people across canada have been asking for this for a long long time because right now not every province has an assistive devices program to help fund part of the cost so some people in some provinces have to pay for a hundred percent of the cost for adaptive equipment which is absolutely essential you know out of their own pockets and so what would the national or federal assistive device program in your mind, what would you like that to, to look like? Uh, because as you say, you know, each jurisdiction, each province has their different approach to it. Some are, are better than others. What, what would you like to see a national program look like? Well, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a dreamer, you know, so uh, <laughs> uh, ideally they should fund 100% of the costs because you know we're talking about wheelchairs we're talking about very expensive hearing aids we're talking about assistive devices for people with vision loss computers and um, adaptive software which is quite expensive over and above the computer that software is pricey um, i think because it is not a luxury it is an essential a piece of equipment or software that enables a person to be independent. So, you know, I, I think the federal government should work that into the budget that, you know, across Canada, people who qualify should get 100% funding. And where can people go to submit their recommendations? Because th these are your recommendations. Where can yes. uh, folks at HAM go and uh, submit their own? 
Well, there's a, a website um, with a link to be able to input your information. You can also send it by, you know, snail mail um, or mm -hmm. give it over the phone. Um, so online, you look up pre-budget consultation 2024, um, and that will that will bring up a link, um, and it will give you information. As you say, you can provide input for quite a while yet till February the 9th, which is great because sometimes when you find out about these things, there's a very short time frame. And um, this is why I like to ha have information coming my way from listservs, from, um, you know, press releases. It was my husband mm -hmm. that picked up on this, um, a press release from the federal government. Yeah, and so I have a couple of uh, addresses here that uh, folks can check out. So there is less let's talk budget 24.ca let's talk budget 24.ca and you can also send an email budget 2024 at fin that's f-i-n dot g-c dot c-a budget 2024 at f-i-n dot g-c dot c-a so that is on the federal scope of things. Now let's focus in a bit more on the local side in the Sioux, Dorothy. Uh, so folk musician Ian uh, Tamblin will be performing a concert on January 21st. So why is this show worth checking out? Well, well several reasons. Um, first of all, to many of us, um, it's affordable. It's $35 and a lot of the concerts that come to the Sioux are, you know, close to $100. If two people want to go, that's a significant amount of money. So mm -hmm. I like the fact that it's reasonable. Um, it's in an interesting location. It's in a place called The Loft, which is, um, it's in the old St. Mary's, one of the old St. Mary's paper buildings, and they've kept, so it looks kind of industrial, um, but apparently the, the acoustics are phenomenal. I have not been there yet. It's it's been open for a while, so I'm really excited to see the location, and I really like Ian Tamblin. I've I've heard him in concert in the Sioux before, and he's what I would call a traditional old time folk singer. Mm. And is that kind of your style uh, of music that you enjoy? Are you a big fan of folk music? Oh, very, very much. I mean, it's not just that I'm older, but I remember the days <laughs> of people like Ian and Sylvia. You know. Um, just uh, really good traditional folk music. Uh, gosh, even, you know, from the States, from Canada. There weren't a lot in Canada to start with. Gordon Lightfoot, you know, all of those mm -hmm. people. I, I just love listening to them. Yeah, there's certainly a classic style, and you get that that, that vibe, especially in your special little location, uh, like the loft, or or even like I think in Toronto, Massey Hall, a great little intimate venue that you can really connect with a, a musician like that. But for folks who want to attend, what accessibility uh, features or or uh, things should they be aware of? Well, I'm glad you asked because I, I looked into that to make sure it was accessible because I know there are stairs, like it's in the upstairs, but there is an elevator. So I was really pleased to see that there's an elevator there that, that it is accessible. Um, so yeah, I'm really anxious to see uh, the, the whole, the building, the space, 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, they, there are some restaurants further down in some of the older buildings, but as I say, I haven't been there yet. People I talk to have, who have been say it's really an amazing space for music, um, and the Algoma Conservatory of Music has that space as well. So they teach music um, with with great acoustics in the building. Oh, that's great. So that was Ian Tamblin, who will be performing in Sault Ste. Marie at the Loft on January 21st at 3 p.m. And before we let you go, Dorothy, you always want to share the happenings of the getting together with technology, especially the Northern Ontario getting together with technology group. And so there was an opportunity to connect with uh, and, and learn all things tech. So what uh, this is a virtual meeting and it's open for anyone across canada to get involved so what is taking place at the next meeting okay the next meeting is tuesday january 16th we meet at 7 p.m eastern 4 p.m pacific and um, sometimes we have speakers and a topic but and this particular meeting is more sort of the people that attend sharing um what new tech did you get for Christmas? Or mm. what would you have liked to have received for Christmas? Um, what I like about this is like, I'm not a big techie myself. <laughs> and I like to hear of something that someone has found really, really helpful. Even if it's just something like um, headphones, you know, um, and and see what's new out there that, that any, any of us on the call might be interested in. It's that whole peer sharing that I just love about it. Very good. And so, uh, lastly, where can people go to register and sign up for this next meeting? Okay, they can do that through CCB, um, Get Together with Technology Program uh, in Ottawa, um, online on the CCB uh, website. And uh, David Green is the person that you can register through and get all the and Zoom information. Perfect. And I have his email address here for folks who want it. It's david.gtt at ccbnational.net. I'll say that one more time. David.gtt at ccbnational.net. And again, that uh, next meeting is January 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom. Dorothy, thank you so much for uh, bringing these stories forward. Have yourself a wonderful day. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. That was Dorothy McNaughton, a community reporter in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. In one minute, Laura Bain will share her entertainment report. But first, CES has kicked off this year's event in Las Vegas. Here's uh, reporter Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. Gary Shapiro is the president of the Consumer Technology Association, which puts on CES every year. He says they're expecting attendance at the show to be roughly back to pre-pandemic levels. So we are expecting uh, over 3,500 companies, over 130,000 people, over 1,000 startups. But Engadget's Devendra Hardwar says it's a much different event now. It is weird to think of what role CES is playing now when so many uh, device makers are having their own events. For instance, Samsung will be there. There, but it's saving the reveal of its new Galaxy smartphones for next week. Other companies like LG and Volkswagen do have big announcements planned for the show, which means for Hardwar, CES is still relevant. There are still really cool things there. It is still a place for the industry to kind of congregate and for business deals to happen. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. 
And now it's time for the entertainment report with Laura Bain. Laura, you wanted to look over to the city of Paris who honored David Bowie, the late great David Bowie yesterday. What more can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is in celebration of what would have been his 77th birthday. Uh, the city of Paris has named a street after David Bowie. So Rue David Bowie is in the 13th arrondissement, which is just a little bit off the tourist track, but still a very cool area. The mayor of the 13th arrondissement is apparently a big David Bowie fan. Um, Paris has different mayors for every neighborhood or arrondissement. So the street right now is a small unnamed like previously unnamed street. It's between two office buildings, but the mayor assures fans. So yesterday, hundreds of fans, including some of David Bowie's childhood friends, gathered on the street for a celebration which featured a concert and an exhibition. And David Bowie actually did his first concert outside of the UK in Paris back in 1965. So he definitely had a strong connection with the city. Mm, that's that's but, very sweet. It is, yeah. I think I might have to, uh, when I go back to Paris, visit uh, Rue David Bowie. But it just kind of got me thinking about what other celebrity streets are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did a little bit of digging. I have a few highlights. So members of the Beehive might want to visit Beyonce Boulevard in Bermuda, so named apparently after she made an appearance there. If you visit the corner of 205th and Hollis in Queens, New York, you'll be at the officially named Rue Run DMC JMJ Way. And that is, uh, they were from uh, the borough of Queens in New York. If you want to get kind of three for one, you could go to Chicago and check off Hugh Hefner Way, Oprah Winfrey Way, and Sam Cooke Way all in one go. <laughs> um, well, so I mean, Alex... like, if, if that's your kind of thing, I guess, checking out uh, streets that are named after people, I, I feel like it's a little bit less uh, um, kind of uh, uh, of an enticement than some other, like, monuments or statues. Mm -hmm. You've just seen the, the street sign, but hey, to each their own. Yeah, I'd say you definitely have to be a super fan to want to go out and mm -hmm. kind of get your uh, selfie maybe with the uh, street sign in the background. But uh, I know you've done quite a bit of traveling, Alex. So yep. I'm thinking, what would you want your street to be named and where in the world would you want it to be? Oh, that, so that is tough because, I mean, I, I wish I had the power and influence of Beyonce of just literally visiting a country and they're like, we got to name something after you. I mean, that would be pretty nice. I'm a fan of alliteration either way. So it could be Alex Avenue or it could be Smythe Street. I would be fine with either of those. So if any uh, city or town wants to uh, invest in me, I, I, I certainly will not say no. In terms of locations, I mean, it's it's so tough because uh, I've, I've had the fortune of traveling so many different places, but I think from a sentimental standpoint, I would want it to be close to home or, or somewhere where, you know, I've actually spent quite a bit of time. That said, I mean, if I, I it could just be after one visit, I, I would love something in Reykjavik. Uh, that, that would be certainly at the top of my list because it's such a, a fun little town. Laura, what about you? What would your street name want to be? Would it be Bain Boulevard or would it be Laura Way? Well, also a fan of, of, of alliteration, I thought Laura Bain Lane kind of had a ring to it. Ooh. Laura Bain Lane. And, uh, like you know, it. if they want to rename the street I grew up on, uh, Laura Bain Lane, I think that would be a huge honor. 
<laughs> but, uh, you know, if not, I also would like to follow in David Bowie's footsteps and have a street named after me in the city of Paris, especially since I'm thinking it probably, uh, I would have to make a few more visits there in order to kind of solidify my campaign for that. Yeah, and, and, and when you, you get the street unnamed, you just make sure it's an all-expense-paid trip. There you go. One more free trip to Paris. Laura, thank you for this. Have yourself a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks, Alex. You too. <laughs> that was Laura Bain, entertainment reporter. Coming up after the break, I have a short regional news update, and Brock Richardson stops by to recap a busy sports roundup. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back to now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. I'm Alex Mike, Ian for Dave. Coming up on the second hour of the show, One More Time debuts on AMI-tv tonight. I'll share my exclusive interview with the show's creator, comedian DJ Demers, and Saskatchewan has stopped charging carbon tax on heating bills. Journalist John Lupke has all the details to share. There's all that and more to come up, but first we begin with regional news. Starting in the prairies, the Manitoba government is promising to improve the intersection that saw a bus uh, crash claim 17 lives last June. Steve Lambert files this report. The province has released an engineering review of the intersection of highways 1 and 5 where a semi-trailer collided last June with a bus carrying seniors to a casino. The report lays out three options to make the intersection safer, turning it into a roundabout, widening the median, or banning left turns in some directions. Premier Wab Canoe says work will now be done to choose the safest option and a memorial to the victims will be built. Steve Lambert, The Canadian Press, Winnipeg. And over in Quebec, students in Quebec's public schools are back in class today following the end of months-long labor strikes. Karen Rebo has more. Major public sector unions reached tentative deals with the Quebec government days before the new year, though members still need to vote on them. One of those unions, the FAE, went on an unlimited strike November 23rd, resulting in the closure of 800 schools for 22 days. That job action kept about 368,000 students home. Other schools were shuttered for 11 days, sprinkled over several weeks as teachers represented by a different negotiating block held strike days of varying lengths. Quebec's education minister will today unveil his government's plan for students to make up for lost class time. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And that's it for the regional news update. It's now time for a sport chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, there is a reason why I am sitting in the host chair today and not Dave, because Dave Brown is celebrating his Michigan Wolverines winning the college football playoff national championship. Yes, he is. And uh, it was a 
good game yesterday. Uh, it was 34-13 in the game. It was closer for a while, and then at the end, uh, Michigan kind of put their stamp on things and move forward. And, yeah, it was a good game, and I enjoyed the parts that I did catch last night. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't catch the full thing. I, I was watching that first half, and they it, it seemed like it was still a game that Washington could win. But as you did mention, Michigan did pull out the victory and, and separated themselves towards the end of the game. We actually have some audio from Michigan's head coach, Jim Harbaugh, who reflected on what the win means for him. I can now sit at the big person's table in the family. They won't, they, won't, they won't keep me over there in the, on the little table anymore. My dad, Jack Harbaugh, won a national championship, and my brother won a Super Bowl. So uh, it's, good to, it's good to be at the big person table from now on. Talk about a, uh, a tough uh, uh, dinner conversation. Well, what do you remember about your win? What do you remember about your win? And now you can finally show off a, a national championship ring for if you're Jim Harbaugh. But, Brock, there's a lot of talks that this may actually be the end of the road for Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. He promised to bring a championship to the team. He may have his sights set on returning to the NFL as a head coach. I like the Harbaugh style in the NFL. They're very um, high energy. Uh, they, they look like players' coaches to me by all intents and purposes. That's what they are. I would like to see uh, Jim go back to the NFL and win a Super Bowl so that he can go and say to his brother, I got one too, and it's all good and everyone's on equal ground because those family discussions are interesting when you consider, you know, family uh, ties and everyone's involved in sports. So I'd like to see Jim back in the NFL and eventually win a championship because I'm a big fan of the Harbaugh family as a whole, to be honest. Yeah, and, and so there's been a lot of connections, a lot of conversation, a lot of rumors out there about a connection between Jim Harbaugh and my Chicago Bears. Uh, they have not fired their head coach, Matty Rufluser, uh, but there is a lot of uh, noise out there that saying that, you know, if Harbaugh is available and interested, maybe he comes to Chicago, who originally drafted him back in the late 80s, early 90s to, uh, to return and help the franchise out. I still have questions around Jim Harbaugh. The biggest one is he seems to kind of burn out his welcome rather quickly. He has great success. You cannot deny his success and the fact he's just capped it off with the national championship. I don't know if he's maybe changed his style at all to make it that he can really connect long-term with players and franchises because college is very different. Your, your team is a different team every single year. Your players are moving on at max after four years. I think that's kind of the max that a lot of players and people kind of can keep focused with Jim Harbaugh. I, I worry that if he's in the NFL where you're getting players who are supposed to be with the team for 10, 12 years, is that going to kind of wear thin after those first uh, four years in, in the NFL like it did with uh, San Francisco? I don't know, Brock, what do you think? Do you think it, uh, he'll go back and he'll stay long-term then? Yeah, I don't know about long-term. I think that he'll... He'll go back. He'll get another another you know try. I think I think that you're right in the sense that he just kind of um, 
uh, pushes himself sort of to his limits sooner than probably he should. But I do think he's gonna he's gonna get another crack. Whether it's long term, that'll be up to him and how things kind of go. But if you can get short term success, that's the recipe you need for you know to stay around and in coaching positions and I really truly hope uh he goes to a team that needs the help and can inject a little bit of I'm gonna say it instant success knowing that it wouldn't necessarily be instant success but I just hope that he can bring that somewhere and show himself look I've had success here I I need it I want it I just think he's a better he, he can be a good fit in the NFL if he can stay somewhere long term Absolutely. And speaking about building up success for the future, you wanted to focus in on the MLB offseason and all uh, focus in on team building, specifically between the, the differences between the Dodgers and the Blue Jays. Yes. So the Dodgers have landed um, Otani, who was the big, uh, the big fish in the offseason. Plus, they have landed Yamashito, Boo. Uh, Yamamoto, who's another uh, Japanese pitcher as well, plus they signed for one year Teoscar Hernandez. And there's no denying that the Dodgers are all in yet again this year and want to win. And we've seen this where they get all in and then they get to the World Series and they don't win like they should. And for me, that's kind of where I sit. And I was watching a recent... Uh, a press conference of general manager, not a press conference, it was an interview uh, with general manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, Ross Adkins, who basically said, yeah, we're happy with what we have. We have the talent here, uh, and and we're going to be okay with it, um, and I'm just going to bang the drum with our team, which got me to thinking, which of the two would you rather? Would you rather the Dodgers model of, listen, we're going to go all in, but we might not get there, to the Blue Jays model of we tried, we didn't get what we wanted to, but I'm going to bang the drum of what we have, and would you be satisfied with what they have with the addition of Isaiah Kiner-Falefa from the uh, New York Yankees? Uh, well, I mean, if you're asking me to which team has had more success recently based on the model and, and which has gotten to uh, the World Series, well, the Dodgers, uh, they do a pretty good job of being competitive every year. The Blue Jays don't. So I think that's a pretty uh, glaring um, difference between the two. Obviously, we all kind of knew in our heart the Blue Jays were not going to spend $500 million plus on show on a single player, even if he is generational, all-world, compared to Babe Ruth as one of the greatest all-time because he can pitch really, really well, and he can hit really, really well. There needs to be more done, though, if, if you're a, a Blue Jays uh, kind of general manager, because, yeah, your your team has underperformed. You do have talent there, but... You need more talent to get over the hump. You can't just be kind of fighting for this like last wild card spot every single year and, and think that's a recipe for long-term success. Sooner or later, you have to kind of really dive in and get a big fish in free agency or really hit on a, uh, a prospect that's going to bring you instant or near instant success in the league. I, I just don't see the Blue Jays really being all that competitive where they, they currently sit. It's going to be one of those teams that, okay, they'll they'll be around, they'll hang out, they'll be in conversation for a playoff spot, they'll fall short because they just don't have enough 
firepower throughout the lineup because that's what it really comes down to in baseball. You need to have that depth because even look at where Otani came from. He came from the LA Angels, which had Shohei Otani and Mike Trout, two of the best players in the league, and they didn't make the playoffs. Want to know why? Because you need more of a team around them. And I, I think that's really what where it stems from. You need to have big players, but you need to have that team as well. What about you, Brock? Yeah, I think that um, it, it's easy when you say that you're in on, allegedly, because I agree with you, I don't really think that they were in on Shohei Otani as much as the Toronto Blue Jays wanted us to believe. But it's easy for Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro to say, oh, yeah, we're in on we're in on players. And then when it doesn't happen, you kind of turn have the turnaround and where they say, yeah, but we're happy with the team where they are. And that's what they're going to say until they add the pieces where they where they can say, yeah, but we added this, this, and that. When you fell short and didn't get uh, the players that you hoped to get, that's what you're going to have to sell. For me, I look at uh, Mark Shapiro as the uh, president and CEO, and I do say he's sort of there right now to see these renovations through. That's his big thing that he got this ball rolling with the renovations. That's not enough for me to say, yeah, well, I'm the guy that got the renovations going. What you need to say is, I'm the guy that got the renovations going, plus I got a championship team brought to Toronto. Because having said that, the only thing that you've done so far is the renovations and a couple of uh, wildcard bursts, eh, not good enough for me. So to me, the leash is becoming shorter and shorter, given now that the renovations are becoming to an end and that leash is going to become shorter because eventually Roger's going to turn and say, yeah, but you got the renovations done. Where's the team that you promised to put together? So it's twofold for sure, Alex. Absolutely. Brock, that's all the time we have for Sports Chat. Have yourself a wonderful day and you'll chat with uh, Dave tomorrow. Indeed. You as well. Okay, that was Brock Richardson at the sports desk. Coming up after the break, Saskatchewan has stopped charging carbon tax on heating bills. Journalist John Lepke has more on the uh, story. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Environmental issues are simmering in the province of Saskatchewan. The province has stopped charging carbon tax on heating bills. This move is the latest in an ongoing saga around carbon tax rebates across the country. John Lucky is here with more and John is a freelance journalist based in Saskatchewan. Hi John, how are you doing today? I'm good, how are you Alex? I'm not too bad. So, John, can you give us some background on the situation within the province when it comes to the carbon tax? Absolutely. So with Saskatchewan being one of those uh, provinces that focuses on fossil fuel 
um, production and refining as, as part of its uh, of its work as a province. Um, there's been a lot of conversation, as you mentioned, across the country, but particularly in the province, about the carbon tax. Last year, the province announced that they were going to um, make it so that Sask Energy, which is our provincial crown corporation that, that handles natural gas, would not be charging um, uh uh, the carbon tax in response to what we've seen in Atlantic Canada with the federal government providing um, uh, rebates on home heating oil. Now, how they've set this up, and this comes into effect this month, is that you see the charge, you're going to see the charge on your bill, and then there's going to be a rebate number underneath it. Um, and there's a number of avenues, which I'm sure we'll get into, around why this is a challenge. Obviously, there are the constitutional arguments, uh, uh, most of which say that the, um, as one professor put it, from from Calgary to the CBC, that the government has no leg to stand on. Um, also, the federal laws show that if a um, an entity like Sask Energy were to not remit that tax, then um, not only would the entity be in trouble, but also the executives of that entity. So there's movement from the government, the Saskatchewan government, to try to protect those employees, and we'll, we'll see where that goes. And so why was this move taken? You know, you as uh, we both mentioned, it was in response to uh, kind of a, a federal uh, kind of move to support the transition for Atlanta Canada. But why did Saskatchewan respond and, and want to make a similar rebate available? Yeah, a, a lot of the narratives are around, they're always around affordability, but really the argument from the provincial government is that this is a fairness issue, that why, and we often see this in, in many aspects of um, federal policy it affects this province, is Saskatchewan's government uh, deciding to put out the narrative that, you know, why, why do folks in eastern Canada get this? This is favoritism from our from our government that is that is seated in the eastern half of the province and, and why should why should saskatchewan uh bear the brunt mm. and so what has the reaction been from this move uh exasperated size from a certain portion <laughs> of the province um and and some people i would argue that a lot of people do uh, see credence in this narrative, rightly or wrongly, that why does Atlantic Canada get this rebate when we don't, and it's a huge part of our economy, and, and really, if we look at the root of it, this is about protecting the economic interests of fossil fuels, which are in a, shall we say, contentious position in our current uh, scenario where climate change is um, galloping forward ever faster. Yeah, and you did touch on the fact that there there may be some legal challenges, some ramifications from this move. So can you talk a bit about how this issue is going to play out on the political side of things, on the legal side of things? Like, where do things go from here? Absolutely. So Saskatchewan has petitioned, um, I'm using that term sort of liberally it's it's not a, a you know they haven't formally sent you know a commons petition or something but um to make it so that legally sask energy is the provider of natural gas uh, or the provincial government is the provider of of natural gas to the province to protect those sask energy um employees from what federal law may uh may impact them we don't quite know yet what the federal 
response will be. Um, the federal response thus far has been, you can't do this, um, but this is a real testing. Uh, and, and it's also very much, um, Saskatchewan's really building off of the anti-Ottawa sentiment that we've seen in, in Alberta. Um, Alberta ran and is continuing to run, I believe, sort of what I would call anti-Ottawa ads around some of this energy um, uh, energy fear stoking, I guess you could call it. And anytime that I'm not logged into my YouTube premium subscription so that I don't have to see ads, I am treated to Scott Moe telling me how unfair Ottawa is. Um, so really, it's, it's, it's currently really in that court of public opinion. But you can see the Saskatchewan government spinning up and understanding what those federal ramifications could be. And like I said, trying to protect their employees thus far. Oh, yeah, and John, I know you're going to stay with this story and you're going to bring us more updates as they become available because uh, you're always very good at just keeping your ear to the ground and, and making sure that uh, Saskatchewan is well um, well covered and well reported on. But staying within okay. the province and going from carbon taxes to the impact of carbon in the atmosphere, you wanted to highlight <laughs> a very st uh, unusual start to the winter taking place in the province. There may be snow on the ground uh, now or, or coming soon, but there was a lot of warm weather in the kind of the month of December. So how rare yeah. was a snowless end to the year for you and your area? Very rare that we have a, a very little, we had a light dusting on Christmas, which was nice mm -hmm. uh, amongst the holiday season. But yeah, Saskatchewan sort of prides itself in a lot of ways in being very cold and very snowy uh, this time of year. We have a snowfall warning. So, you know, uh, not to go too in the weeds for listeners and viewers, but of course, Mother Nature had to change, uh, you know, the narrative that, that was true on last Thursday when we first discussed this to come to air with it. Um, but, you know, Thursday last week, we were looking at about a high of minus six. And now, as I let my dogs out this morning, it's minus 27 with wind chill. At one point, we thought we were going to get lower than minus 50, in the minus 40s with wind chill uh, later this week. Um, so, yeah, it's done the very quick about turnaround. I was looking at Environment Canada's uh, discussions of this over the last uh, few days, and it's thought that the cold air being parked over Siberia for a long time uh, affected this, and that's why we're getting this real this real influx of cold air and snow, and, and a large part of my province this morning is under a, uh, a snowfall warning. I, I'm curious because uh, we had all this, this data, and even earlier in the show, you know, uh, we've been talking about how 2023 was the warmest year on record for Canada. And as a result, we, we see some of these impacts from December pretty much across the, the country, much warmer than, than normal conditions. A lot of areas went snowless for the month of December or maybe got, as you mentioned, that light dusting just on Christmas Eve, which is highly unusual. What are some of the potential longer-term impacts for Saskatchewan in the area when you have the environment uh, kind of warming it like this now or, or keeping kind of the cold weather away longer into January, where it used to be November, early December, you would get it. 
Yeah, I think for the vast majority of Saskatchewanians, I think the way that you first notice it, and and because this is, you know, the the last time in, in my memory, and I've lived here since 2004, that we had something like this was around 2007, 2008. So it's been a while since we faced this. But as you mentioned, the trends are going one way versus the other. Um, I think the first way that most Saskatchewanians see it is in infrastructure. So if you see things like the snow clearing budget, if it were if we were to have multiple years like this in a row, you might see the snow clearing budget shift. You might see um, infrastructure challenges in that sort of way. And that's often really challenging because um, obviously the Department of Highways provincially deals with that. But when you get into municipal budgets, um, in particularly Saskatoon and Regina, those shifts have a deep impact. I mean, one of the largest talked about things during winter is, hey, uh, and I'm sure it's the same where you are, why is my street not cleared? I want my street cleared. Why was my buddy's street cleared? Um, and if we see those weather shifts really start to affect the landscape, that's that is where it's going to hit first. Interesting. And and before I let you go, I'm I'm curious because obviously now you know with when you're having the uh, the snowfall there, the the conversations tend to kind of change okay well now winter is here and you know the fact that we we've had the warmest year on record the fact that we didn't have snow up until christmas day you know oh, that doesn't matter anymore because snow is finally here but have conversations have the the viewpoints uh from the province changed at all when it comes to things like environmental policies i know we're talking about you know the the carbon tax pricing which is again an environmental policy, but has there been any change or, or kind of, uh, um, I guess, a bit more of an understanding of what these environmental policies, the impact may be, if you start to see more signs of things like climate change, of, of warming of the atmosphere and uh, changing weather patterns? Yeah, I, I think in certain sectors, that is true. I, I certainly think that our conception of who works in the fossil fuel industry particularly is very singularly, particularly in this part of the world, really focused on sort of the, the oil rig worker, for example, mm -hmm. when really there's a whole system of logistics around there. Certainly um, engineering professors at the university level are, are, are thinking about this often in terms of concepts like land back and indigenous land rights. That's always a conversation in this part of the world. Um, I will say, I think one of the conversations that shifted, I've noticed a, a sort of a, a shift in how, when I'm talking to disabled folks in this province, we're having these conversations that are like, particularly as wheelchair users, like it's nice to be get around to get around without snow on the ground <laughs> and mm -hmm. for this to be easier and for paratransit not to have any, many, as many breakdowns, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm starting to see a shift in conversation where it, previous years when we had these warmer periods, perhaps um, in times gone by, it would be, oh, it held off, you know, a couple weeks. Yeah. That was a nice to have a couple weeks. But it's a real conversation shifter when it's like, we should have had this snow in November. Um, this, you know, I like being able to get around, but also that that climate change piece is really coming further to the forefront. Saying, actually, and for myself personally, sh should I feel comfortable with how happy I am that I can move around uh, easier when when it actually links to something fairly dire? <laughs> um, I think that's where the shift goes. I, I'm not quite sure that because of the way that our province runs currently politically, that that has made its way necessarily to um, to policies 
perhaps outside of things like indigenous lands rights, um, but those claims processes take take so long that I'm I'm not quite sure we've seen that impact yet. But uh, that may be question a question that part of the question may be for uh, a a scholar rather than rather than me. <laughs> Fair enough, John. Well, thank you so much for bringing these stories forward. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks for having me. That was John Lefke, a freelance journalist based in Saskatchewan. Coming up after the break, one more time, debuts on AMI-TV tonight, and I'll share my exclusive interview with the show's creator, DJ Demers, and that is going to be coming up. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. One More Time is a new series de debuting tonight on AMI-tv. The series is created by and stars comedian DJ Demers. I had a chance to chat with DJ about the series and his work in comedy. And so for those who don't know, the show focuses on the owner of a secondhand sporting goods show, a store, I should say. DJ plays the owner, who is also happened to be named DJ. The series has been a whole new experience for him, and he spoke all about what he's learned through the process of making the show. I learned that I can act a little bit. <laughs> I didn't know if I could, but um, yeah, you just learned so much about story versus jokes. You know, stand-up, it's, it's a lot about the the joke and, and how funny it is. And that's obviously very important in a sitcom as well, but the jokes don't matter if there's no story, if the, if the journey, if the, if the viewer doesn't care about how this, the actual story ends up, then the jokes don't matter. So it's been a really good lesson in, in crafting a good story and the arc of every character and making sure that there's something to sink your teeth into. And then the jokes hit harder as well. So it's been, it's been a learning experience in terms of how to write a, a sitcom versus a, a stand-up set. And DJ is known, as he mentioned, for his stand-up. So I wanted to find out from him why he wanted to get into the world of scripted comedy. Here's his response. Honestly, I, I my whole life, I've just always been like, since I started stand-up, I've been like, I got to write a sitcom because I, I really enjoy watching them and I really wanted to see if I could do it. So... I just wrote one just kind of to test myself. You never really know if somebody's going to like it enough to make it. And CBC, lo and behold, did like it enough. And I feel very grateful for that. But I never really thought I would like anything as much as stand-up. And I've loved this entire process start to finish. We're editing right now from the writing to the actual shooting of it to the editing. I've loved every step so much. And it's so collaborative. And you get to work with a lot of talented people who teach me something every day so it's just been honestly just such, such an amazing process so i feel very very lucky feels like a dream that i can't believe it's happening to be honest with you so it's pretty cool 
Having had a chance to check out the first two episodes before they debut, one thing that uh, stood out to me was the balance that he struck between jokes involving his disability, living with hearing loss, and, and the broader jokes of the average everyday person. So I wanted to know from him if he consciously tried to maintain that balance or if it was something he considered at all, and this is what he had to say. I, I think I'm always trying to strike a balance. I'm not trying to hide from the hearing aid because there's a lot of material there. But at the same time, I want everybody, whether they have hearing aids or not, to enjoy the show and enjoy my stand-up as well. And then even the hearing aid jokes that I make, I try to make sure that even those, if, if you don't wear hearing aids, you can enjoy them. So I guess what I've learned from my time as an entertainer, as a comedian, is that trying what makes things universal is the emotion behind anything so even if i'm telling a joke about my hearing aid if it's specific about hearing aid technology let's say then you're gonna zone out if you don't wear hearing aid but if if i make the the crux of the joke about the embarrassment that this technology causes just as one example then everybody's felt embarrassment at some point in their life so if i really focus on that then i know that i can draw everybody in so I, if there's something funny, whether it's hearing aid related or not, I dive into it, but I always make sure I'm trying to figure out what the emotional, like the emotion is at the heart of that joke. And so if you are a uh, regular listener or viewer of AMI, you know DJ may not be a new name to you because he's had a long history and past with AMI. In fact, his first scripted series to DJ Demare shows was uh, on and produced by AMI, and he reflected fondly on his time working with the company. Just keep getting better. I, I feel like I loved doing the DJ Demare show on AMI and I have very fond memories of AMI overall. I was there for I think three years and they let me they let me learn a lot on the fly. I was out there, I was a reporter when I joined. I don't know why they let me do that, but we uh we had some fun and uh, then I ended up they ended up uh giving me the show for a season. Um I just I just try whether it's stand up or or TV stuff or even I was doing a podcast with AMI too. I just try to learn every every step along the way, and also you learn a lot about what you like to make and what makes you laugh. And for me, laughter is I've learned that is nothing matters to me more than laughter. Like I I am a comedian through and through. So even writing this sitcom, if we go longer than ten or fifteen seconds without a laugh. I feel very uncomfortable. I'm like, we got to find a way to get a joke in here. And um, I, I've learned that through trial and error, like being a reporter at AMI, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot, but I realized I was very tempted in the middle of a serious conversation to like slip a joke in. Um, and But then I also realized the power of, you know, a serious conversation is important as well. And And the joke is always funny if it, rather than like, obviously you never want to belittle anybody or or anything like that. But if the joke is a way to bring some levity to a serious situation and everybody involved feels better after that joke, I learned there's a lot of power in that too. So um, yeah, everything, whether it's radio or podcasts or TV, this new sitcom, uh, I just try to learn a little bit about what I like to create and what um, what I'm, I'm, I'm best at and try to really hone in on that. So I've just been fortunate enough to to learn a little bit from every experience along the way. 
one more time debuts on AMI tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also find it on AMI+. Plus. And for more information on the show and his comedy tour, you can visit djdemers.com. And Demers is spelled D-E-M-E-R-S. Now, I just want to welcome in Ramya Amuthan to find out what's happening elsewhere on the AMI network. And, and Ramya, you have to be a bit short with this. I mismanaged the clock, but what is the top line item coming up on Kelly and Ramya today? We're talking about saunas on our wellness segment with Francis Wong because, you know, new year, new me, new wellness routines and saunas, she says, is a really great way to get started in 2024, Alex. Oh, I, I am. I've become a recent fan of saunas. I will say that. Maybe there is something to them that is quite magical. Mm -hmm. Ramya, thank you so much. That is for Kelly and Ramya today, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-TV. Coming up after the break, it's time for the weekly news quiz. We have Karen McGee, Alicia Yardley, and Elizabeth Moeller going head to head to head. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Alex Smythe. It's Tuesday and it's the end of the show, so you know what that means. It's time now for the weekly news quiz. Uh, it's always my favorite segment on the show. So let's welcome in the contestants. We have Karen McGee. Hello, Karen. Hello, Alex. Nice to see you on this side of the camera. It gives us a fighting chance. Yeah, there we go. And going up against Karen, <laughs> we have Elizabeth uh, Moeller. Hello again, Elizabeth. Hello again, Alex. And last, we have Alicia Yardley. Hello, Alicia. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm not too bad, so I'll quickly go over the rules for folks at home. We will have three rounds of questions, three questions per round, three multiple choice options per question. You answer without hearing those options, you get two points. You get answer correctly with an option, you get one point, and you get it wrong, we go around to the next contestant until the point is awarded. Now, the order was drawn up by producer Paul Daniel. It will be Elizabeth, then Karen, then Alicia. Starting in round one, we begin in international news. So, Elizabeth, this is for you. Queen Margareta II of Denmark announced earlier this month that she will abdicate her throne after more than half a century. What is the name of the son who will succeed her? Um, I need the options, please. Sure. So will it be Hans Emil, Harold, or Frederick? I'm going to say C. Frederick, that is correct. Elizabeth is on the board. Going over to question number two around one for Karen McGee. In what European nation are five people currently trapped in a cave after heavy rainfall caused water levels to rise? I'll take the choices, please. Is it Austria, Poland, or Slovenia? 
I'll go B. Poland. Poland is incorrect. So oh. going over to Alicia, is it Austria or Slovenia? Austria. That is incorrect. So the oh. the debut uh, the default point goes to Elizabeth with Slovenia. Going over to question number three of round one with Alicia. The highest court in this country struck down a controversial law that would have limited the court's power. Which country did this happen in? Uh, can I get the options? Sure. Was it Israel, Iran, or Switzerland? Iran? That is incorrect. So going over to Elizabeth, you have a chance to get up 3 nothing on the other contestants. Can I just say, is, or do I have to have yes. the options? It's Israel. Uh, well, you, so it's it is Israel. That is correct. So Elizabeth, after one round, has taken all the points. She is up three, nothing, nothing. But never fear. There's two more rounds to come back in the game. So round two will focus on questions related to sports, and we begin with Karen McGee. So Karen, a former NASCAR driver, died Sunday at the age of 84. They were the first to win three consecutive cup titles. Who was it? Uh, I don't follow NASCAR. I'll take the choices, please. Okay. Was it Kale Yarbo, uh, Al Unser Jr., or A.J. Foyt? I'll go A.J. Foyt. That is incorrect. <laughs> of course so it is. We, <laughs> we go over to Alicia. Was it uh, Kale Yarborough or Al Unser Jr.? Uh, I'm going to say B. Al Unser Jr. is incorrect. <laughs> Elizabeth Moeller, you get it's another my lucky default day. point. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I, I kind of wish I was uh, uh, not hosting oh, this yeah. so I could get Stop. these default points. Stop. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you win okay. enough. Don't worry. Don't worry. There's still plenty of opportunities to turn this thing around. And for contact, Jarborough's championships were in 1976, 1977, and 78. And it made him the only driver to win three straight NASCAR titles until Jimmy Johnson made it five in a row from 20, uh, 2006 I would never have got to that. 2010. <laughs> Question number two to Alicia in the world of sports. The Toronto franchise of the Professional Women's Hockey League won its first game in the, uh, the season on Saturday. Who did they defeat for their first ever win? Great question. Can I get the options, please? Was it Minnesota, New York, or Boston? I'm just taking a shot in the dark. I'm going to say New York. That is correct. Alicia is on the board. Toronto won three one, avenging its debut loss to New York on a uh, uh, loss on New Year's Day to New York. Question number three of round number two. Elizabeth can all but assuredly lock this game up. So, Elizabeth, in which Canadian province are some amateur soccer referees participating in a pilot program by wearing body cameras as a deterrent to parental abuse? Uh, options, please. Is it Quebec, Montreal, or Ontario? Did you say Quebec, Montreal, and Ontario? I'm a little confused. Sorry? You said Montreal, but that's not a province. Oh, uh, sorry, Manitoba. My eye oh, okay. slipped up there. 
So is it Quebec, um, Munch, uh, Manitoba? I nearly did it again. Quebec, okay. Manitoba, or Ontario? I'm going to say um, Quebec. That is incorrect. Ooh, Karen McGee, you have a chance to get on the board. Is it Manitoba or Ontario? I'll try Ontario. That is correct. Karen oh, McGee, you are point. on the board. <laughs> there are 50 body cameras available to the roughly 6,000 referees in the province, according to the Ontario Soccer Association. Now, for round number three, these are all general news stories. We begin with question one with Alicia Yardley. So, Alicia, Claudine Gay abruptly resigned as the president of which Ivy League college over charges of plagiarism and criticism for her congressional testimony about anti-Semitism on campus? Oh, um, can I get the options, please? Was it Princeton, Harvard, or Brown? I'm gonna say Brown. That is incorrect. We head now over to Elizabeth. Was it Harvard or it's Harvard. Princeton? It's Harvard. It is Harvard. Elizabeth now with five points on the board. At six months uh, uh, in total, Gay's tenure marked the shortest term as a president in the university's history. Now, at this point, these uh, these points, uh, these questions are almost not going to change the outcome of the game, but we still play through regardless. Elizabeth, in which U.S. state uh, which U.S. state is the first to offer health insurance to all low-income, undocumented immigrants? Ooh, options, please. California, Vermont, or Connecticut? I'm going to go with A, California. That would be correct. As of January 1st, undocumented immigrants, regardless of age, will be able to qualify for Medi-Cal, California's version of the federal Medicaid. And to question number three, around number three, we go over to Karen McGee. You see how I, I, I get the alliteration and the rhyming? <laughs> and the... Mickey Mouse became Sorry. public property uh, public uh, in the public domain after the U.S. copyright of the earliest version of the Disney character expired on January 1st of this year. Another famous cartoon character also became a part of public domain. What cartoon character was it? Well, there's two potentially, Winnie the Pooh, I believe, and also Minnie Mouse. From the so version what of is going to be your... I'll, I'll go with uh, Minnie Mouse. That is incorrect. We go over to Alicia. Alicia, uh, is uh, do you want the options or do you want to uh, take a guess without the options? I'm going to say Winnie the Pooh. Sorry? Winnie, Winnie the, the Pooh is incorrect. And lastly, uh, to uh, uh, Elizabeth, cool, you got to be quick here. Are you going to take options or are options. you going to guess? Options. Okay, was options. it Bugs Bunny? Was it Tigger? Or was it Popeye? A, Bugs Bunny. That is incorrect. I get a point. It was Tigger. So with that, oh. the winner is Elizabeth Moeller. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so we can't fully celebrate. But congratulations, Elizabeth. And I have to say thank you to the contestants, because that's all the time we have on the show. Thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. It's Alex Mike here.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.